The House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And, of course, it's me from the Smoke Fire BC recording, <laughs> Al Warren. And on the other side of the country, fighting the hurricane. The hurricane of stress. <laughs> that's about it. Um, we got uh, David North Martino. Hey, Al. Maestro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's another day. Another day. So, another uh, day. yeah, you know, it's crazy. I, I, anyway, well, I'm, I'll, I'll save my... Uh, Grabbing till later, you know. Just, <laughs> uh, we've got um, another guest that, uh, of course, we saw on Frey Away, uh, the Netflix show documentary, um, and uh, so we're we're kind of covering a lot of that. Um, as the One Network says, the only reason Al Warren has the House of Mystery is to promote, promote his gay agenda. So <laughs> we're continuing with promoting my gay agenda. Um, we all have strippers at nine. So now joining us, we have uh, Michael Bussey. Thank you for being here, Michael. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So, uh, Michael, that's quite a um, that's quite a show. Pray away. Um, I was kind of shocked. So was I. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't I hadn't really seen it um, until about three weeks before it aired on Netflix. So I didn't know what to expect, and it, it shocked me too. Um. But that shock for you, I mean, because you were part of Exodus and part of this sort of thing going on in, back in the in the 90s, I guess. and Back in the 70s for me. Well, ooh. <laughs> um, how did, but you, you didn't see it as it is now, then, you know what I'm no. saying? It, it, it was different to you back then. It was very different back then. Um, the ex-gay movement, what we sometimes today call conversion theory, but the ex-gay movement itself actually began in the early 1970s, um, primarily within evangelical churches, um, to give spaces for gay Christians who were struggling with their sexuality and their spirituality uh, someplace to go and talk to each other and provide mutual support for each other. So really, it was much more of a just a, a low-key support group than Bible study sort of situation now we never ever got involved in politics never ever took any money um that all changed i i was only with um exodus for three years i helped uh host the very first conference where exodus was born that was september of 1976 in at melody land christian center california and i left only three years later so i kind of consider uh, consider myself exodus's first defector um an escapee <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's kind of crazy in a sense, I guess, um, it, because homosexuality really went from uh, being illegal to being a um, mental problem, like an ailment that you have to fix. Right. I say some often that I grew up at a time, I was born in 1953, and I grew up at a time where being gay was a crime, a sickness, and a sin. All three of those things, and we didn't have any other. We didn't have the internet, so we didn't have any other stories to, any other narratives to latch onto. The psychiatric community at the time pretty much agreed that it was a mental illness that maybe could be treated, probably not. Um, 
but that it was definitely a mental illness. So, and there, there was no place else to go. So when the uh, American Psychiatric Association removed it as a mental illness, that really caused chaos within the evangelical community because a Christians didn't have any place to go. They thought, well, if it's not a mental illness, then I don't need therapy. Um, but I, do, I can't really align with the gay pride movement because of my biblical beliefs. So where do I go? What do I do? And so these um, little support groups started popping up around the country, and ours was one of the very first ones uh, in 1974. There was one year before up in Northern California called Love in Action, and it grew into something pretty bad. But initially, those first three years, I would say, three or four years, it was pretty benign, uh, mainly just, just like a bunch of gay guys getting together in the Bible study room to talk about their lives. It was actually kind of fun. You know, we yeah. could finally talk to other people, other Christians like yourself. The emphasis on changing orientation, that kind of came later. I mean, we did believe that God could change us because we were going to a you know, charismatic church where miracles happen. So we thought, well, maybe ours will happen too. But the focus was mainly on just mutual support. Um, I left in 1979, and then Exodus after that took a very serious turn into conservative uh, right-wing politics, uh, actively fighting against gay rights and accepting money to do it. How did you feel about yourself back then? Like when, when you first started going to the Bible study classes and Exodus at the very beginning where it started, um, what were you thinking about yourself or about your sexuality? Were you thinking that it's it's a wrong thing, it's bad, it's something you need to change? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I was pretty uh, mercilessly um, bullied as a kid in elementary school and junior high. A lot of name-calling, but also being beaten, having rocks thrown at me, people spitting on me, calling me names, because I wasn't like all the other boys. I had a little bit more of a feminacy, I guess. But they, I didn't know what it was yet. I knew I was attracted to boys, not girls. But there wasn't a name for it. But I, I knew from the bullying that I was getting um, that this was something very, very bad and that you should try not to be this. Now, I didn't grow up in a religious home, but I got caught up in the Jesus movement of the early 1970s and became a Christian, a born-again Christian. And then I started learning that the Bible said this was bad, too. And I thought, well, in order to be a good Christian, that means I have to not ever do it, right? And maybe hope that God would create some straight feelings in me. Kind of a naive wish, but back then you thought, well, you know, maybe this is the way to go. This, this is what people are telling me is the right thing to do. So I noticed that there weren't any Bible studies or any kind of support groups at the church for people with gay feelings. There were support groups for... Uh, divorced people, people with drug and alcohol problems, but never anything about us. And so I went to the pastor at Melody Land, and I said, I'm curious as to why there aren't any support groups for gay Christians or people who are struggling with, I think I said, struggling with gay feelings. And he looked at me and said, well, maybe you're being called to do that. Maybe God's calling you. And I thought, wow, the pastor says God's calling me? He said, well, we'll give you a room on Tuesday night and you can set up in there and have your own Bible study. I said, oh, that'd be great. You know, so we we started having it. Um, so, yeah, I I didn't grow up in a religious home, but I certainly got the cultural message that there was something wrong with being gay and something you should try to fix. Well, maybe you should have went to the Catholic Church. 
Maybe so. See, I, I often think, you know, if, what, if, what would have happened if as a young man I had found a more liberal or welcoming or inclusive church? Um, I think something like Exodus still would have grown because Exodus is rooted in homophobia, and as long as homophobia is around, there's going to be something like Exodus. But I sometimes think, boy, if I'd only gone to some affirming Episcopal church or, you know, and I might have still started support groups, but they'd have a very different slant to them. Yeah. But you ended up getting married and, and having a child yes. and, and, and going through that pattern. Was, what, did you feel like you had to do that or that would actually no. make you straight no. maybe? or No, no, I didn't. Have, I wasn't naive like that. I was actually finishing. I had finished up my bachelor's degree in cultural anthropology at a local university, and I was finishing up a master's in psychology. So I knew that getting married wouldn't change it. Um, a lot of gay men that went through these programs did get married. Um, they were told that if they found one particular woman that they could be friends with, could be close with, that maybe God would then bless that by creating some heterosexual feelings. And both my wife and I believed that. I mean, we loved each other. I had known her since high school. You know, she was she's still one of the most wonderful people I know. But I shouldn't. Well, I say I shouldn't have gotten married, but if I hadn't gotten married, I wouldn't be a grandfather with four wonderful grandchildren. You know, so you can always look back in retrospect and say, gee, I wish I'd made other choices. But um, it really broke her heart, and that's something that happens a lot in these programs is this collateral damage when the wish that you both have doesn't come true. You have to face the reality. And she felt inadequate, like her faith had failed. I felt inadequate, like mine had failed. You know, and... Um, I talk to men like that every day who are even just now coming out of their marriages or having to face the facts about that they didn't change. You know, that leads to, to faith itself. So, yes. um, okay, so being uh, that you were being a Christian, so you thought, okay, so if I, if I worked at this and I did the right things, God would cure me, so to speak, or make me straight. Yeah, or at least transform me. The idea was that it wouldn't happen overnight, but gradually the gay feelings would diminish and they believe that you have a natural inherent heterosexuality and if you can just resolve those other issues your natural straightness will come out and that would take some time but I have to tell you that I have never ever I've been out of it since 1979 I have not met a single person who has actually changed from uh, gay to straight through reparative therapy or one of these programs ever not one um, even Alan Chambers, the past president of Exodus, the one that closed it down, admitted that 99.9% don't change their orientation. That admission pretty much sealed the deal for Exodus, because if they couldn't promise change, what were they for? Well, yeah, well, you know, but it's, it's interesting that, um, so over a period of time, you were still feeling attracted to men, right? Oh, yeah. Like that never went away. No. In fact, it was the opposite. Not only did the feelings not go away, they continued to deepen and intensify. And it were, they weren't just sexual feelings. They were romantic feelings and a, and a desire to be bonded to somebody, to marry, to truly marry someone. Um, those feelings got stronger and stronger and stronger. I noticed that the guys that were coming to our little support group were getting more and more discouraged and depressed because they weren't changing either. 
Um, and, and some of it turned pretty dark. We had a couple of guys in our group who seriously considered suicide. One paid a, a sort of a half attempt at doing it. And I, and I thought, I just have to get out of here because this change that we're all hoping for isn't happening and it's actually hurting people. So about that same time, I realized that I was falling in love with one of the guys in the group. And that was Gary. Gary Cooper is his name, and we ended up leaving um, our wives and coming a couple together, and we spoke out about Exodus um, till his death. So does that, for a Christian like yourself, does that make you lose faith in God itself? Um, I'd say, that's a hard question. I'd say yes and no. It, it caused me to completely reevaluate anything I had ever been taught by the culture, by the church, I mean, everything. There's this unraveling that people that used to be in these programs talk about, survivors talk about this unraveling, getting the reevaluating scripture. Is it really the infallible and inherent word of God? Do those passages really condemn homosexuality? Um, how much of this do I actually believe? How much of this is maybe figurative instead of literal? Um, does God really exist, you know? The change that I believed in isn't happening. What else do I, I believe in that might need to be questioned? You see what I mean? You go through this, this kind of deep soul searching about why did I get involved in that to begin with? Why did I believe that? And what do I believe now? And that's a long that unraveling process. One survivor wrote a book called uh, A Life of Unlearning. And he's in his 60s or 70s, and he's still kind of unlearning the programming that there was something broken about him that she fixed. So my my faith, when people say, well, are you still a Christian? That's a hard question. Um, I wouldn't use the word Christian in the same way that I used it 40 years ago. I do consider myself a Christian in the sense that I believe in the teachings of Jesus and try to follow his example. But there's a lot that I'm now willing to just sort of accept that I don't know. And maybe you never will know. And that's okay. I don't need the certainty. I don't need the black and white fundamentalism that I used to have. When you watch the film in its entirety and you look back at it, what, what do you think about it in general in the fact of, do you think it's going to help? Do you think this is a good project? Or what, what's your feeling on the whole thing? I think it's going to have, I think, I don't just think it will have, I already know it's had a really powerful impact, um, at least in the, in the hearts of the people who have seen it. I've gotten messages and, and uh, emails from survivors of these programs from all around the world, literally, from Australia, New Zealand, Europe, Germany, Brazil, Peru, Bolivia, Canada, um, and more every day from people who are saying, I went through one of those programs. I know what this feels like. I know what it did to me. I know the damage it did to me. So that's a powerful thing. It's had that impact. The other impact I think it has is it's kind of, it's kind of started a very important conversation. I mean, we've been having the conversation for some time, but I think this pushes it forward because if the people who were once promoting the cure say that the cure doesn't work and will actually make you sick, make you worse. If the leaders are saying that, sit up and listen, you know. 
that's pretty impactful. And they're not just the, those of us who are on the screen. There are 26 former leaders now who have denounced Exodus and signed a statement calling for the end of this kind of practice. So there's momentum. There's also criticism about the film, which I think is legitimate. Um, shortcomings. But it's just, you know, it's one documentary, so you can't cover everything in one documentary. I think what was different about this one is you had five former leaders of this movement, and it is a movement, five former leaders of the movement, and one guy who's still promoting it, but five former leaders saying, this does not work. This is harmful. Um, and that, the evangelical community hates the film. Um, they're a very conservative evangelical committee, uh, community, and I'm really glad they do, because it's shaking them up, too. They're having to think about it, talk about it. You know, it's, it's, um, it's kind of rattled their cage a little bit, and I, I think that's a good thing. I don't think they'll collapse. I don't think they'll close their doors, but it, it ruffled some of their feathers. You know, How could it not, you know? It does not paint the whole ex-gay movement in a very good light at all. It's a, it's a dark film. It's a it's disturbing. If you haven't seen it, it's disturbing to watch. Um, I found myself at times uh, yelling at the TV screen. I found myself in tears, yelling at what we used to say and realizing how wrong it was. Almost like watching another universe, if that makes sense. How could... How could any of us have ever believed that? How could we ever have taught that? And for the ones who took money to do it, I think, how could they do that? How did they reconcile their conscience? See, we never did. The first three years of Exodus, it was strictly just volunteers. And we all had regular, real jobs. Um, and we never got involved in politics. But when I saw the film, I thought, why did they, why were they willing to turn a ministry into something like a political weapon against the gay community? Didn't they see that that was wrong? You see in the film that they finally did. They woke up to the fact that what they were doing was hurtful. There's one particularly uh, moving point where Randy Thomas, the fir uh, former vice president, says he's afraid to look at his hands because there's blood on his hands. Um, and I think all of the former leaders feel that kind of heavy responsibility. And they should. You know, we should. Well, that's what I was going to ask, too, about um, with that infusion of politics and money. I was going to ask if uh, you felt that money was uh, really changed uh, the, the, the movement and the organization. Drastically. I would say drastically changed it. From a small network of support groups for struggling gay Christians to a political weapon to use, uh, used by the religious right, the what happened is the religious and political right saw ex-gays as an opportunity for them because they could fight against gay rights by saying, see, you can change it. You don't need equal rights. You just need to change. And you can change. So they could come across as both loving on one hand, we're just helping people change, but then they could use those testimonies to um, fight against uh, marriage equality, for example, or, or, or fight against... Um, ordinances in, about housing or employment. Um, they, so they were very happy. The big religious right was very happy about the ex-gay movement, and uh, 
You know, that I, there's a passage in the Bible that says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I think that's very true. I think Exodus in its later years proved that. Um, it's actually one of the reasons I left in 1979, because they were just starting to toy with that idea of, of accepting money and getting involved in politics. And I was strongly opposed to that. I said, no, 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 no. We cannot go that way. It's got to be just a group of strugglers, not a political weapon. But when I left in 1979, the decision was made in the early 1980s to really link up with those groups, those far-right political groups. You see that in the film, too. I think that that was a very, very dark turn for Exodus. It made more dark turns, not just that one, but um, that was, I think, probably the major mistake that they made in their early years, in addition to the psychological and theological, you know, about it being something that needed to be changed. This type of, of film is going to actually make the church accept gay or not? Or or will they just keep on going to, you know, with the idea that it's something wrong and it needs to be fixed? I am, I am not optimistic, let's put it that way, that the conservative evangelical church will see this as a wake-up call and change their approach. I just don't. Um, they're too deeply entrenched in that idea. Um, that it's something sinful and needs to be changed. They see us as backsliders and um, as non-Christians now. They would not consider me a Christian at all. They wouldn't consider any of us a Christian now. Uh, although most people who come out of these programs remain about Christians. You know, they may change some aspects of their faith, but they, they still consider themselves you know, devout Christians. Um, no, I don't think it's going to be a wake-up call. At the very end of the film, there's kind of, I think the film is more like a warning. It's more of a, we need to keep our eyes open because, just because Exodus closed its doors in 2013, doesn't mean that this belief has gone away. That you're sick and you're sinful and you need to be changed and if you don't try to change, you're going to burn in hell. I mean, I really see the ex-gay movement as a sort of cult. And I, you know, I know that's a strong word, but when you add on the threat of eternal suffering, you don't keep trying to change, you're going to burn in the fiery lake forever and ever and ever. Now that's, oh my God, now that's, that's, and, and we're going to completely abandon you and shun you if you leave. And that's the threat. And that's what happened when I left, for example. The leaders of Exodus at the time, uh, one of the leaders wrote me a letter describing in great detail how I was going to suffer in hell. So, no, I don't think, <laughs> no, I don't think they're about to change. Not yet. Not yet. They won't listen to science about a pandemic. Well, there we go, crossing over. And this is, <laughs> much, this is more nuanced than that. I think it may um, push people who are on the fence about this a little bit, more questioning churches or congregations, and going, maybe we should rethink this. You know, are we referring people to these kind of programs? Maybe we shouldn't. I also think it may have an impact on parents, who are Christian parents, who are considered sending their kids to one of these therapists or programs. 
to go, wait a second, that doesn't sound like something I want my kid to go through. Um, and maybe as a warning to people who are thinking of getting involved, don't get involved. This will not change you. This will hurt you. Um, get some real therapy from a trained therapist and work through whatever issues you have that are making you depressed or anxious or whatever you're... Many, many people who seek out these programs have serious mental health issues to begin with. They have feelings of guilt, shame, they may have major depression, they may have addictions to drugs and alcohol, and they need help for those. But they don't need to have their sexual orientation changed. You know, they need to actually see and get the help, the professional help they deserve. Have you had any negative feedback now that your, your face has been on this film? And, yeah, oh, yeah, I was going to say, um, Lots. kind of, how do you handle that? Like, what's your reaction to someone that's angry with you, for instance? I used to feel kind of defensive because they would accuse me of things that I didn't do. For example, they'd say, well, you, you took a lot of money or you got involved in anti-gay politics. They don't know that I left. 1979, that I was only involved for three years, and that we never did that. But they don't know that. They just know what they've seen on TV. So when they express anger toward me, I think it's legitimate. I've learned to accept it and go, yeah, you have every right to be mad. I'm mad. You should be mad. Everybody should be mad about this. You know? So I think the worst thing you can do, especially with a survivor, is say, you don't have a right to be angry. Um, and those are the calls that I, the messages I get. They're from survivors going, how come I wasn't on the show? How come there wasn't a survivor talking? How come it was all just former leaders? What about me? You know? And I think that's legitimate. Um, and the anger they feel toward the former leaders, perfectly legitimate. You know? Yeah. And I don't think they can get better until they except that it's okay to be mad about it, you know? It's kind of therapeutic to be angry sometimes. Yeah, no, it's good, you know, getting to a good beating. Um, now, some of the leaders are more recently out. Maybe they just left the movements five years ago or so. So for them, I think it is harder because the comments can be pretty cruel. I've had people wishing I was dead or wishing that my child was dead. So it can hurt, but but I understand where the hurt's coming. Yeah, well, there's a lot of people that have have anger. I, I think more more towards someone like John Polk, for instance. Yeah. What I've noticed is that most, yes, what I've noticed is that the real intense anger is more toward the ones who were actively involved in anti-gay politics. Um, those, you know, and there are, there are actually only a handful that did that. I mentioned that there were 26 former leaders who denounced the program. Most of those people were small group leaders um, in various parts of the country. Nobody would know them. They didn't have any kind of public name recognition like John Paul or Randy Thomas or Alan Chambers, etc. Um, so they don't get the, it must be kind of nice because they're pretty much, they're against the program, but they're not the public face of it, you know. Um, so what I've noticed is they're mainly angry with the ones on the film, the ones who, who did get involved, and they talk about their involvement. 
with the religious right and politics. They're not as angry at me. Well, we, we can try and change that. We can get, to <laughs> we'll get that. We'll get on that. Yeah, you can change that if you want to. The other thing is I think the most important thing, this has, can't be said enough, the most important thing is to listen to survivors. Survivors are what shut down Exodus eventually. Got together a group of survivors on the Lisa Ling show uh, back in 2013, and they let Alan Chambers have it and the leaders of Exodus for five and a half hours in a basement in a church. It was like an intense um, group therapy intervention, and Alan was just stunned. These survivors just really told him what it was like to go through these programs, and I am convinced that it was, it was those survivors that shut down this. So the more survivors we can have talking about what it was like for them, the better. I see you also, um, you're part of that Born Perfect. Um, maybe tell the listeners what that is. Actually, we cooperated with Born Perfect. I don't want to speak forward try to describe Born Perfect, but it's um, an organization that's devoted to the ending of preparative therapy or conversion therapy. They support bans on um, practice, especially for minors. What Born Perfect asked the former leaders to do, they asked if we could put together a statement of, of uh, renunciation uh, about the ex-gay movement. So we got together, at that time it was just nine of us, and we composed this statement, this joint statement. And then we set out to find other former leaders who would also sign it. Um, so that, that was the project that we did for Born Perfect, and I think our statement is on their website just by going to Born Perfect. They're the probably the best-known, largest group right now that's counteracting conversion therapy. So so how's life for you now? What's, what's going on with uh, Michael these days? Well, um, I'm retired. Um, retired some time ago. After... Um, Leaving Exodus, I went on and got my psychology degree and my license, and I was a marriage and family therapist, but I worked primarily inside psychiatric hospitals. Not about this subject at all, more about addictions and depression and that kind of thing. Um, and then I retired. Um, so I'm pretty much at home. It's COVID, pretty much at home. But I also returned to one of my very first interests, and that's history. So I give guided tours of several museums here in town and historic buildings. Um, so, and I go get on the train and go see my grandkids in Kansas. I love being married to my husband, Scott, and taking care of our garden. Just being happy, <laughs> for the most part. You know, life is life. You have, you have your struggles. He still works inside. He's a registered nurse, and he still works inside psychiatric hospitals. So he'll be retiring this year. Both be done with yeah. this mental health stuff. Focus our own. I was going to say that's an interesting choice. Do you think it was made subconsciously? Do you think you just sort of went into that field trying to help help people? No, I did. I I'd actually intended to go into that field. I was I was finishing my degree in psychology when I. Uh, went to Melody Land for the first time. I was pretty close to completing uh, my master's degree. And I happened to live at a, this 
I don't know why, I decided to live at the dormitories across the street that were run by Pacific Christian College. And they were the ones that told me about, oh, have you heard this big church melody land? You should go over there. They have a hotline that you can volunteer on. Since you're studying psychology, why don't you go volunteer and get some experience as a hotline counselor? So that's how I actually got involved in melody land. It's part of my looking, working for a degree. Then I realized this was not good psychology at all. And I needed to get out of there. You know, uh, conversion therapy, they made that illegal uh, across the country of Canada now. Um, Now, is the states, is it illegal federally now, or is there still states that do it? In the United States? Yeah. No. Uh, Some states have banned the practice, but usually it's banning the practice by licensed therapists with minors. Usually all these exclusions. The... The out that most of these programs have is that they don't really market themselves as therapy. They market themselves as Christian ministries. And because of that, they don't have to have trained therapists, and they're exempt from laws like this under religious freedom. Um, So in many ways, the bans are more symbolic when it comes to the religious aspect of this. It sends a message, you know, gee, if the American Psychiatric Association says this stuff isn't any good and should be banned, maybe we shouldn't be doing it at our church. But the one, the programs that still exist would say we don't do that anyway. We don't do conversion therapy. In fact, they'll now say we don't even try to change people's sexual orientation. They don't think sexual orientation exists. They're more about obedience now. Oh, you will always have these feelings. You may not become straight. You can live in straight and narrow life. And if you don't, you're going to hell. <laughs> With conversion therapy, um, I think it's important for people to know that the, the dangers of it. Uh, oh, yeah. People have died. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, people have. Um, if you take a person who already feels guilt-ridden and maybe suffering from major depression, and you put them in one of these programs... And you say, well, the reason you're depressed is because you really are broken. Mm. You really are sinful. This really is a terrible thing. And it probably is because of something in your past that happened to you that made you this way. I mean, God, you take a uh, vulnerable, depressed person with religious guilt and tell them that. Mm. You know, it's going to to worsen. And that's what happens. And I saw it happening in my own group. Depression, disappointment, it's deeper and deeper. And the message that they pick up is, well, that's because you don't have enough faith, or you haven't prayed enough, or you haven't read the Bible enough. You are not enough. You're not doing enough. That's why you're still broken. God, what kind of, that's not therapy. That's psychological and religious abuse. A therapist, a real therapist, would never say that to them. You're broken, it's your fault. No. If anybody says that to you, run. Just run as fast as you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to be careful. Yeah. Um, how do you um, like people to contact you? Do you have a website or a... Uh, Facebook is best. Facebook is best yeah, for you. Facebook is best. Um, I have a group, um, a discussion group about the movie, which I paused for about a week and a half because... Reactions were so strong, everybody kind of needed to calm down a little bit, including me. So, um, <laughs> but it's, and just what, go, wow, this is, 
that's not, the movie itself is, I had to watch the movie in chunks. Most people have, where you start it and stop it, start it and stop it. It can be that disturbing. So I set, put together a group called Pray Away uh, Discussion with Michael Bussey, and it's on Facebook. Um, and I'll probably unpause it about another week. I'm kind of on vacation. So that people can discuss their reactions to the film and get information. Okay. Pray away discussion, watch and discussion with Michael Bussey. Great. And what we'll do is we'll have that on our website as well so people can link up to it and find you and, uh, and, and, uh, hopefully. How, how's the COVID, uh, been dealing for you? Oh boy. Well, I'm fully vaccinated and my husband was a registered nurse, the same thing. But he, um, he works in a psychiatric hospital, but all the nurses keep getting emergency alerts on their cell phone about nerf- nursing shortages due to COVID. So their emergency room is filling up again. And uh, it's scary. It's scary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a strange world. A lot of people, uh, you know, and I think things like this group, unfortunately, like a lot of them, people go looking for help, and they're getting um help by people that are not really trained like like this group uh in exodus and and you know the pray away and all that most there's no real professional psychiatrists or counselors there is there no i'd go further to say there aren't many to say there aren't any um that are really that are really trained and qualified in the area of human sexuality and dual diagnosis that have depression things like that very very few in fact, Exodus has traditionally always been kind of anti-science, anti-psychology, which they would view as secular. That's secular, and that will lead you away from the Bible. Um, they had, they did uh, hook up with North for a while, to, uh, an organization of uh, therapists that thought you could change your orientation, basically to get try to give themselves some legitimacy. But it was junk science. It was ridiculous stuff. Um, but for a while, Exodus, Exodus did hook up with Joseph Nicolosi and the whole conversion therapy, secular conversion therapy movements. What do you suggest for people to do then? Someone right now is struggling with um, their situation and that they're gay. Um, what do you suggest? Um, find support. Uh, support is out there. Unlike when I was growing up, there now are uh, groups for gay Christians to discuss in, a, in an inclusive way, one that won't try to change them. Uh, there are groups where they can discuss the feelings they're having and get support from other gay Christians. Um, there are quite a number of those organizations. I mean, I can pro- provide uh, links and resources to those. Um, tell your story, you know, even if it's just to a friend. Start building your support network. Uh, you, need, you deserve that. Be honest to yourself. Tell the truth about your own. What I finally had to say, look, I'm not changing. I'm still gay. I still have these feelings. I needed to speak that truth to myself first before I told anybody else. Um, so speak truth to yourself, I would say to them. Listen to your own heart and soul that tells you that you know you're gay. You know you're not changing. Now, the question should be, now what do I do? How do I live my life the best way I can as a gay person? What do I want my life to look like? Instead of trying to change my orientation, 
how can I become the best prepared person I can? Take that approach. Yeah. Well, on that, we will be wrapping up the show. Um, okay. It's been a very good show. Um, My pleasure. And uh, thank you for being here. Our guest has been Michael Bussey. Thank yes. you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Please listen to Survivor Voices. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll tell you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Wave Media.